The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. After having had a chance to adore you in song and confess our sins and make an offering to you, we now seek to be instructed by you through your word. We praise you for the gospel of Luke, for inspiring Luke by your Holy Spirit to write down these stories for us, to know Jesus today, to encounter him even this morning. I pray, Father, that you would do just that. I know that we're completely dependent on your Holy Spirit to see you clearly, Jesus. Help me by your grace to preach these passages clearly and accurately, to communicate your word well, and I pray, Father, that you would cause each of us by your Spirit to listen, to understand, and to be rightly moved by your word. I pray simply that you would cause us to see you more clearly today, Jesus. Show us the Son. Show us Him in all of His majesty and His glory and His beauty. Specifically today, I pray that you would show us His mission, His heart, and His joy. I pray that we would be changed as a result of seeing Him and as a result of knowing Him through your word. Only you can do this. Do this for your glory. Do this out of your love for us. Do this for the sake of all those in our lives who don't know you, but will be blessed by us knowing you and following you well. It's in your name we pray all of these things. Amen. All right. Hopefully you have your Bibles open to Luke, 15, uh, Luke 19. Sorry, already. If you don't, you can go ahead and turn there. How many of you have seen the movie 13 Lives on Amazon? Oh, very few people. This might not be a good example then. <laughs> so I, I haven't seen the whole movie yet. I just started watching it this, uh, this past week with Sarah. It's on the story of the soccer team in, in northern Thailand that got trapped in the, in the cave. You might remember back in, in 2018, there was a, uh, a soccer team uh, of, of kids. There were 12 kids, I think, ages 11 to 16. And they went off uh, with their coach, and they got trapped. In, uh, they went off into a cave um, and got trapped there because a monsoon came and, and flooded the cave. And uh, I'd already seen a, a great documentary on this movie put out by National Geographic. It was called The Rescue. And so I was kind of hesitant to, you know, watch a, a film on the same thing because you, you already got to see footage of real people doing the real thing. Why would you watch a, a fake version of that, right? But uh, there's not really much good to watch nowadays. So, you know, Sarah and I were maybe desperate, I guess, and, 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 uh, and started watching it the other night. Um, but, but the story itself is, is, is incredible. It's an incredible story of, of heroism and, uh, and of danger. Um, the, the effort to save these, these, uh, uh, these 12 kids and their coach was, was valiant. There were about 10,000 people who were involved in this effort. They were pumping water out of the cave. They were trying to cover up sinkholes to prevent water from going in. They had the Thai Navy SEALs trying to dive to rescue them, and they called uh, uh, cave divers from, uh, it was the, uh, the British Cave Rescue Council. Uh, they called cave divers to come out and, and to try and find the kids and rescue them. Um, it took eight days to, 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 to find the kids um, and to realize that they were still alive with their coach. Um, and then it took uh, another nine days, I think, or sorry, nine days to find them, and then uh, maybe another eight days to, uh, to finally get them out of the cave. Uh, they had to, to uh, resort to an ingenious medical solution to give the kids a, uh, an anesthetic so that they could, they could put the kids under and, and, and dive them out of the cave safely. Uh, an incredible effort and, uh, and a story of great heroism and, uh, and also danger. And you can imagine what, what great joy the families and friends of these children of this coach must have had to have finally had been, been reunited with them again. That here their children, here, here this coach, they, they were lost. They were as good as dead. And now they have their, their family and, and their friends back to them safely. They've been restored. They have them back to life. Why am I talking about this? Well, as we continue to encounter Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, we find that he is on the same kind of mission. He's on a mission to seek and to save the lost. And the stakes for Jesus are much higher than the stakes in the cave rescue. It's not just physical death. The lost he's seeking are about to perish 
eternally. And the heroism of this man, of Jesus, the heroism of this man that we find in Scripture is really beyond comparison in, in history. He saves the lost at the sacrifice, at the cost of his own life. He dives into a cave that for him would be a watery grave. But one of the striking points of contrast, I think, between the, the great cave rescue story that's been made now into at least two films and, uh, and, and the rescue story of Jesus is that you know, in, in, in the cave rescue, the world loved these kids. The world embraced these kids. They cared about these kids and they're coached. Uh, they were embraced by the people. But in Jesus' rescue, he wasn't always seeking and, and saving people uh, that, that were well-liked by others. In fact, in, in Jesus' case, uh, sometimes his mission involved going after uh, people that were despised by the world. And that's uh, the, the kind of situation that we encounter here in Luke chapter 19. We're continuing on in our, min, in our mini-series in the Gospel of Luke. This is kind of a different way of preaching than what we normally do here at our church where we pick a book of the Bible and work through it chapter by chapter, passage by passage. It's still expositional. We're going to look at uh, uh, different passages from God's work and seek to draw out the meaning of it and apply it to our lives. But this series is, is topical in the sense that we're going to spend, it's a mini-series, we're only going to spend the, uh, seven Sundays, it's the second of seven Sundays, in the Gospel of Luke trying to paint a portrait of Jesus. The goal is to, is to really know Jesus, is to encounter him anew here in his word. And then this is going to be followed up by a second series on following Jesus. It will be another short series, topical in nature. We're looking at different passages that God uh, where, where God calls the church to do and, and, and to live a certain way, um, to do certain things and to live a certain way as followers of Christ. It's, it's appropriate for us to start first by looking at Jesus together, by beholding him and encountering him in his word. That will give us the kind of hearts that we need to follow him as he calls us to follow him. Our portrait of Jesus so far is, is, uh, is, is somewhat sparse. We started our, our brief study in the Gospel of Luke last week. Luke, of course, is, is one of the uh, four Gospels that are included in Scripture. Gospels are kind of like ancient biographies uh, that also have a, a theological message. And in Luke's Gospel, we started looking at the prologue uh, last week where we saw that Luke says that these accounts uh, can be traced back to, to, to the accounts of, of the eyewitnesses themselves. He says that he's investigated everything from the beginning and that the account he's compiled is orderly. The purpose of his account was to uh, reassure his readers of the Christian message, of the Christian teaching that they had received. And then last Sunday, we picked up our brush and we started painting on our canvas this portrait of Jesus. And we used paint from the story of of, uh, of Jesus healing the paralyzed man in Luke chapter 5, where uh, he, was, he was teaching in somebody's house, and a group of men came with their paralyzed companion, and they tried to get him to Jesus, but they weren't able to because of the crowd. And so they came up with this, uh, with this very bold um, uh, with this very bold and, uh, and, and dramatic idea to open up the roof and lower the paraplegic through the ceiling to get him in front of Jesus. And from that story, we saw that Jesus responded to these men, uh, to, 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 the, to the faith of these men with, uh, with, with a pronouncement of forgiveness, and he revealed himself to be the Son of Man who has authority to forgive sins. The Son of Man is what he called himself. He was referring, he was drawing from a, 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 an ancient prophecy in the book of Daniel that talked about this heavenly figure who would come before the Ancient of Days and, and be the agent of God's kingly reign over God's people. Jesus says, that's me, and this man has the authority to forgive sins. And then he shocks the religious leaders who think he's blaspheming, that he's violating God's majesty by saying this. He shocks the religious leaders by performing a miracle in front of them by showing them that God's behind him, that he possesses God's power by, by, uh, by miraculously healing the paralyzed man that had been brought to him. So we see an idea of who Jesus is. He's the son of man who has authority to forgive sins. We get this idea of faith that it's not only believing that Jesus can do these things, but it's relying on him uh, for help if he chooses to help, if it's going to him. Um, and then we see that the right response of the crowd was one of amazement. It was one of, of being filled with fear and, and then praising God, which is the same response that we should have to experiencing his power today. Now, when we come to, to Luke chapter 19, uh, we're gonna see a... Um, uh, in our study today, we're, we're going to have an opportunity to, to get another important, uh, to, 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 to uh, consider another uh, very important part of the portrait of Jesus that Luke paints in his gospel for us. Uh, we're going to see that Jesus was a shepherd 
on a mission to rescue lost sheep. And it's a mission that extended even to those on the fringe of society. God cares about outcasts. And it's important when you're reading the Gospels to not consider stories in isolation from where, where that story is found in the book. So in the story previous to the passage that you just had a chance to hear, Pastor Keith read in Luke chapter 19, Jesus, was, uh, uh, Jesus encountered a, a, a blind uh, beggar on the, road, uh, on the roadside who was crying out to him, asking, uh, asking him to, to be healed of his sight. Um, he was crying out despite the fact that people were trying to keep him quiet and, uh, and, and, and rebuked him for crying out to Jesus as he, was, as he was walking by. Jesus had the blind man brought to him, and then he healed him because of his faith. And then in the passage today, this theme of Jesus' ministry to the marginalized continues to be developed by Luke as we meet a different kind of social outcast. The outcast in our passage today is a despised sinner. In fact, in Luke chapter 7, verse 34, uh, it says that Jesus was denounced, quote, as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was not a compliment, by the way. They were not talking about how Jesus is such a good friend to these poor people. They were condemning him. They were denouncing him for being supposedly a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's the title of the sermon today. And our story from Luke chapter 19 is going to give us an example of why Jesus was, uh, why Jesus was called this. Um, I hope that as you see Jesus in this passage, you're going to be moved in a, in a similar way to, uh, to the way you're moved when you watch a movie like 13 Lives or when you read about the, the incredible uh, story of, of the cave rescue in northern Thailand. I hope you're moved by the heroism of this man, by his mission to seek and save the lost who are perishing. And I hope you're also moved by the exuberant joy in finding the lost, uh, of this mission being accomplished. And I hope that in this process, we'll not only get a glimpse of, of the mission of Jesus, but also get a glimpse at his heart, what is his heart for sinners? What is his heart for the lost? And also, what is his joy? So again, as I, as I mentioned last Sunday, this is not going to be like a regular sermon. Oftentimes, we'll try and have points that are, are relatively well-balanced, two or three points that kind of break up the passage with a nice illustration and application maybe in each of those. Uh, that's not going to be the case today. We're going to be looking at a number of different passages. Our, our primary concentration is going to be on the story in Zacchaeus. Uh, we'll look at that first. We'll briefly consider three parables that reveal God's joy in finding the lost at the end uh, and help further illuminate his heart for us. And then we'll draw out some, some big applications for us as we close. So have an idea of where we're going with this, hopefully? All right, let's go ahead and, and take a look at Luke chapter 19 together. You can turn your attention to verse 1. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now I want to ask you something. When you think of an everyday sinner, what kind of people come to your mind? The stereotypes that you have of, of you know, these kinds of people, these, these are sinful people. You probably wouldn't think of a tax collector today, um, but you might think of somebody like, you know, if you're a Christian, you might think of, of abortion doctors. Or, or, uh, or surgeons who perform uh, transition surgeries. Or uh, perhaps you'll think of, of, of homosexuals uh, or, or, or people who engage in, uh, in, in sinful behavior that we recognize to be uh, wrong according to Scripture. Uh, obviously, if you were to ask many of your secular friends what they think of as, a, as an everyday sinner, and by everyday I mean you know, people that you would encounter in ordinary life. You're probably, everybody's going to recognize that, that sex traffickers and, and, and murderers are, uh, are sinners, but we don't really encounter those people a whole lot in everyday life, right? Uh, many of them, if they've been convicted, are in prison. So, um, everyday sinners, if you were to ask, you know, the world, who do you think, what, what's, your, what's kind of your stereotypical sinner? They might, you know, think of, of you know, greedy and corrupt businessmen or lawyers or politicians. They might think of white supremacists, members of the KKK. You know, those are the kind of people that, that, that might come to their minds and should come to our minds too, right? When we think of, of these, are the, these are, you know, when we think of sinful people, that, that's it, right? Th th this is them. Well, in Jesus' day, tax collectors were a stereotype of, sin of sinful people. 
Sometimes we, we're kind of wary of stereotypes. This was a stereotype that was, that was valid uh, in many cases. The tax collectors, they were despised by Jews as thieves and extortioners. Uh, since tax collectors, they often demanded more than was actually required uh, uh, for, 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 uh, for taxes. Um, they often demanded more than was required so that they could take the excess uh, for their own profit and, uh, and line, their, line their own pockets. So they were, they were essentially defrauding their neighbors for their own gain. Um, some Jews also viewed uh, Jewish tax collectors as traitors uh, because they were collecting taxes for their oppressors, for the Roman Empire. Um, and so this Jewish man, Zacchaeus, he's not only a tax collector, he is a chief tax collector, uh, which likely means he held some kind of significant position in the local tax operation there. Uh, perhaps he was even employing other tax collectors underneath him. Uh, so he's a, he's a chief sinner, right? And, and it also says he's wealthy, as wealth was presumably the result of his success in the corrupt world of taxation. Um, and this is the man that, uh, that, that, that's being set up here by Luke for an encounter with Jesus. So in verse 3, it says that Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. It seems like Zacchaeus was curious. Uh, news about Jesus had no doubt reached him. News was spreading uh, around about Jesus. Maybe he had heard about how this man had uh, given sight to the blind or enabled the lame to walk or made the deaf hear or raised people from the dead or cast out demons. Maybe he had heard about Jesus' teaching and his conflict with the religious leaders of the day. Perhaps he even heard about how this, this man associated with other tax collectors and sinners. Uh, whatever it was that piqued his curiosity, Zacchaeus wants to catch a glimpse of, of Jesus as he's going by. Um, but Luke says that Zacchaeus was short. Uh, perhaps he was even under five feet tall. This is a, 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 short, a short man. Um, and verse 3 says he cannot see over the crowd. So what Zacchaeus does, verse 4, he, he runs ahead. He climbs a sycamore fig tree to see Jesus since Jesus was, was coming that way. And these trees would have been relatively easy uh, to climb. They were probably shaped kind of similar to the way our oak trees are, are shaped today. Um, now, I, I just want you to try and, and, and put yourself in this story for a second. If you were in the crowd, what would you think of a grown man perched up in a tree? You'd probably think this man doesn't have much, much dignity, right? This is certainly not a, a very dignified thing to do. Um, perhaps Zacchaeus didn't have much dignity to lose. He was already a, a social outcast. Or maybe he was willing to sacrifice whatever dignity he had because he really wanted to, to see Jesus. Uh, maybe it shows us how curious Zacchaeus was. But verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said, to, and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. He tells this despised sinner, a chief tax collector, I must stay at your house today. Now that's an odd thing to say for multiple reasons, likely the biggest of which is because of, of who he's saying it to, right? This is a a, a notorious sinner. But it's also strange because Jesus, he, he says that he must stay at his house. He says, I must stay at your house today. Why must he stay there? Well, one theme in Luke's gospel is this idea of God's plan being worked out in history. And so there's kind of a, a necessity to Jesus' actions this must be done to accomplish God's purposes, to accomplish God's plan. And based on the rest of the story, you've already heard how this ends, what can we tell as part of God's plan? Ministering to despised sinners. Zacchaeus is delighted. Not only does he get to see Jesus, now he gets to host Jesus at his place. Verse 6 says, he, So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. In the original language, Zacchaeus' actions correspond to Jesus' call. The ESV translates this better than the NIV, which we're preaching this passage out of right now. But in the ESV, Jesus said, hurry and come down. That's verse 5. And then verse 6, Zacchaeus hurried and came down. And he welcomed Jesus with rejoicing. How do the people react to this? Verse 7, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. 
Trish, try, try to step into the crowd again for a minute here. I want you to think for a second of the stereotypical sinner that you hopefully, hopefully came to your mind earlier. Whoever that person is for you, a greedy and corrupt businessman or a, a sex change surgeon, how would you feel if you saw Jesus receiving their hospitality, asking to go stay at their house, or asking to go be served by them, and then receiving their, their hospitality? Perhaps he was not. It's kind of an uncomfortable picture, isn't it? He's going to go stay with a greedy and corrupt politician. He's going to go eat with a, an abortion doctor. His association with sinners is scandalous in many ways. Why, why do you think you would feel this way? Maybe if you knew nothing about Jesus, you would see his fellowshipping with these people as, you know, maybe conveying a certain level of acceptance or tolerance of their behavior, um, behavior which we know is certainly not acceptable or tolerable. But even if we knew that Jesus didn't accept their sinful ways, if we knew he was against abortion and sex change surgeries and greed and corruption and all those things, if we knew he was against all those things, there's still something about the scene that might make us want to grumble kind of like the crowd did. Why do you think the people reacted like this? They're dissatisfied. They're upset with Jesus. Scholars have suggested a few reasons why. For one, Jesus could be viewed here as sharing in Zacchaeus' sin. Since the hospitality he received may have been provided for by ill-gotten gain, right? A second reason is because ostracizing sinners was a way of discouraging sinful behavior. We still, this, we still do this today too, right? We might try to shun or marginalize or cancel people who engage in activities that we don't approve of, sinful activities. And then if someone doesn't participate with us in that, we might get upset with them for not appearing to you know, really care about these issues, not really care about these sins, or maybe for, for making matters worse by not excluding them with us. But a third reason is that you know, maybe fellowshipping or dining with sinners uh, could have been seen as, as morally or ritually defiling for Jesus. Uh, by ritually, I mean that you know, in the ceremonial system of worship, uh, which required them to, to be you know, clean or fit for worship by following certain rituals, uh, Jesus uh, dining with them or fellowshipping with them could have uh, rendered him ritually defiled uh, according to, to certain views. Jesus, though, he, he's not afraid to touch the unclean and he doesn't play by the rules. His ministry to outcasts definitely challenged the prevailing social and religious norms. Do you think Jesus cared about the evil practices of tax collectors? Do you think he cared about how they were defrauding their neighbors? Of course he cared about it. He condemned greed. He condemned extortion. He was the one who taught in Luke 6.31, do to others as you would have them do to you. Of course he didn't accept their behavior. Then how do you think that Jesus could embrace sinners like Zacchaeus? How could he do such a thing? Well, according to him, he can do it the same way a doctor embraces a sick person. There's a story in Luke 5 you had a chance to hear it read earlier where Jesus calls a tax collector named Levi to follow him and be a disciple. Uh, Jesus, of course, had a number of followers. There were 12 that were closest to him. These men followed him throughout his ministry, uh, working with Jesus and learning from Jesus. And Levi, the tax collector, who was also named Matthew, became one of the 12 disciples, and he later wrote the Gospel of, of Matthew, one of the other uh, accounts of Jesus that we have included in, in, in the Bible. And in Luke 5, it says in verses 27 through 32 that Jesus saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Jesus said to him, follow me. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Here's Jesus' answer, verse 31. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus embraces tax collectors 
like Levi and like Zacchaeus, the same way a doctor embraces sick people. He doesn't approve of their sickness. He doesn't like their sickness. He desires for them to be healed. He receives them to offer them hope, to offer them help, to offer them restoration. He calls them to repentance. That's a word that we use in church oftentimes, repentance. When you hear that word, what what comes to your mind? Repentance. The biblical meaning of the word, perhaps the most simple way to understand it, is turning. Turning away from sin and turning to righteousness. Repentance, you could say, is a, a change of heart that results in a change of life. You can kind of flush out the concept of repentance a little bit more. I, I think it's helpful to, to, to break it down into a, few, into a few different components or a few different ingredients. Repentance involves turning, actually, these are four R's for you, four R's of repentance. Kind of flush out this idea of repentance a little bit. It involves recognition of your sin, remorse over your sin, renouncement of your sinful ways, and resolve to walk in righteousness. Recognition of your sin, remorse over your sin, renouncement of your sinful ways, and resolve to walk in righteousness. Luke 5.32 again, Jesus said, I have come to call sinners to repentance. Now if we go back to the story of Zacchaeus, the people, they were muttering about how Jesus went to be the guest of a sinner like Zacchaeus. But then in verse 8, look what Zacchaeus does after encountering Jesus. Verse 8, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, repents. He repents after meeting Jesus. Zacchaeus is actually a great example of repentance. Zacchaeus recognized his sin and was likely remorseful over it. When Zacchaeus says, if I have cheated anybody, by the way, he's not saying I may or may not have cheated people. He means that for anybody he has cheated out of anything, he would reimburse them four times the amount. He acknowledges that he defrauded people. He agrees that it was wrong, and he wants to make full restitution for his wrongs. The Old Testament law, the Torah, required thieves to repay whatever they stole with a 20% increase. Leviticus 6, verses 1 through 5. But Zacchaeus, he voluntarily chose to follow the much higher requirement, which applied in cases of slaughtering or, 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 or selling stolen sheep. A fourfold reimbursement. Not just repaying with the 20% increase, but repaying fourfold. Exodus 22, verse 1. He recognized his sin. He was likely remorseful over his sin. He wants to make restitution for his sin in a very full way. And then second, Zacchaeus renounced his sinful ways. This is, I think, implied by his decision to make restitution for everyone he harmed. And then lastly, he resolved to walk in righteousness. He decided to give half of everything he had to the poor. Half of everything. That is a radical act of generosity. I want you to just think of one wealthy person you know right now, a wealthy person that you have a relationship with. Try and picture them in your mind. Imagine how amazing it would be if that person you knew gave away half of their wealth to people in need. That would be an amazing thing for any rich person to do. It's even more amazing to see it coming from a chief tax collector who once preyed on others for personal gain. Zacchaeus had a change of heart that resulted in a change of life. He made a 180-degree turn, turned away from his sin, and turned to righteousness. As a result of Zacchaeus' repentance, with half of his wealth given to the poor and the other half used to pay all the people that he wronged four times over, 
You can imagine that he'd be in a very different place financially when all was said and done, right? This is a minor point, brief application for us. Luke, in his gospel, talks more about wealth and possessions than any of the other gospel writers. Zacchaeus' response is an excellent example of the kind of heart posture that followers of Jesus should have towards their possessions. What Zacchaeus exemplifies in Luke 19 is nothing short of extreme radical generosity. Half of his possessions given to the poor. How much money do you give? How much money do you sacrifice for the kingdom of God or to help those in need? Whatever it is, it's probably very far from half of everything you have. That is a dramatic act of giving. And yet that dramatic, uh, that, that dramatic generosity is the kind of generosity that ought to characterize the way we view our possessions and our resources as Christians. Don't have time to go into that now, but wanted to hit on that before we move forward. Going back to Zacchaeus, I just want you to think for a second of how difficult, humanly speaking, such a dramatic act would be. How might it be difficult for someone with great wealth to do what we see Zacchaeus do here? To part with that much money. Right? Money is, money provides security, it provides power, it provides pleasure. And as a result, it has a very alluring force on our sinful hearts. It's very difficult to depart from, especially if we come to rely on our wealth for protection or for provision rather than on God. In the chapter immediately prior to this one, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus encountered a rich ruler who he called to sell all of his possessions, give it to the poor, and then come follow him. And Luke 18 says, when the ruler heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, it's it's God's end time restorative reign over his people. It's a reality that's broken into the present with Jesus. And Jesus uses a metaphor to say that it is humanly impossible for someone with wealth to experience the kind of, of heart change they need in order to enter God's kingdom. Humanly impossible. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Move on to chapter 19. That's happened. The camel went through the eye of a needle. Zacchaeus experienced that heart change. The alluring power of wealth was broken for him. He is the camel that goes through the eye of the needle. How do you think such an impossible change of heart could occur in Zacchaeus? Well, in the previous chapter, after hearing what Jesus said about how difficult it is for the rich to enter God's kingdom, Verse 26, it says, those who heard, heard this asked, who then can be saved? It's a reasonable question because back then wealth was viewed as a, as a sign that somebody uh, was blessed by God. So if those who experienced God's favor weren't going to be saved, who could be saved? Verse 27, Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. What's impossible with man is possible with with God. In other words, the heart change that a wealthy sinner needs is impossible for man to accomplish himself. But God can do it. The ultimate reason behind Zacchaeus' impossible change of heart was the miraculous work of God. The Bible actually says the same thing about all of our hearts. No one, rich or poor, can experience the heart change we need to enter God's kingdom unless God supernaturally changes us. If anyone ever changes the way Zacchaeus changed, we know that it was God's work, and he deserves all of the glory for it. Now, I want you to notice something important. In this story, what is the connection between repentance and salvation? Jesus responded in verse 9 to Zacchaeus' repentance by pronouncing this, quote, Today, Salvation has come 
to this house. Zacchaeus repents and salvation comes. The connection, hopefully, is obvious. The one who repents experiences salvation, eternal life. It's similar to how, in the passage from last week, the faith of the paralyzed man's companions resulted in his forgiveness. Repentance results in Zacchaeus' salvation. Repentance and faith, they're two sides of, of the same coin of receiving salvation. The Bible teaches that all, that Jesus saves all who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus to save them. All who repent and put their faith in Jesus, Jesus saves even the most notorious sinners, even the chief tax collectors, even the most greedy and corrupt Businessmen, politicians, lawyers, even the white supremacists who are members of the KKK, Jesus saves if they repent of their sins and put their faith in him to save them. Jesus, in light of Zacchaeus' salvation, he makes a profound point about his mission. Read verses 9 through 10 with me. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. He calls himself the son of man again. Daniel's prophecy, the heavenly figure, the agent of God's reign over God's people. Jesus says that he, the son of man, came to earth to seek and to save the lost. This mission of seeking and saving the lost is a very important backdrop in the Old Testament in a prophecy by the prophet Ezekiel. The Old Testament, if you've read through it or you've been in church, it tells the story of how after mankind rebelled against God, God chose a man, Abraham, to bless and to make into a great nation, Israel. And through this nation, God would bless the world. The nation eventually established a monarchy, And God promised their great King David that he would establish David's kingdom with a descendant on his throne forever. The kingdom of Israel, it was later divided in two. There was the northern uh, kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom of Judah was ruled by the house of David. But both kingdoms were eventually judged by God because of their sin and the people were exiled to foreign nations. Now the prophecy of Ezekiel uh, in Ezekiel 34, it uses imagery of shepherds and sheep. The people of Judah are God's flock of sheep and God, or in the first part, their leaders are the shepherds. And God announces in Ezekiel 34 that he's going to be removing the shepherds, he's going to be removing the monarchy because of their selfishness and their neglect of the needy. And then God says that he, the owner of the flock, will be their shepherd. In Ezekiel 34, listen to verses 15 through 16. God says, I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. He will do what the royal shepherds fail to do. He will rule with justice and concern for the needy. And then God also said in verses 22 through 24, I will save my flock. In that context, he would deliver them from oppression from fellow Jews. And I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Come back to Luke 19. Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, alluding to the prophecy of Ezekiel 34. Jesus was identifying with God's mission as the good shepherd of his people. He is God's prophesied servant, David, who would do God's will. The promised son of David and the greater David who would tend to God's flock and care for the needy sheep unlike the old shepherds, unlike the old kings of Judah. And even though Zacchaeus was a tax collector, a despised sinner, Luke 19, 
Jesus says that he was still a son of Abraham, which means he was a member of God's flock and among the needy that the good shepherd of Israel came to care for. Jesus uses an interesting metaphor for Zacchaeus' condition. Look at verse 10 again. He says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He says Zacchaeus is a lost sheep. He refers to Zacchaeus as lost. Zacchaeus' need is similar to the need of a lost sheep. How would you, how would you describe the condition of a lost sheep? Lost sheep, wandering out on their own, are in imminent danger, right? They might lack pasture. They might get injured. They might get stolen. They might get devoured by predators. Lost sheep will eventually perish on their own. Sinners like Zacchaeus are lost sheep because they will perish on their own. The Bible teaches that all sinners will perish under God's judgment, eternal punishment. But Jesus said that he seeks the lost. What would it look like for a shepherd to seek lost sheep? The shepherd doesn't wait for the sheep to come back to him. He searches for the sheep. He tracks the sheep down. The good shepherd, he cares about his own sheep, so he goes after the sheep. And in the same way, Jesus as the good shepherd of God's people, as the greater David, he pursues lost sinners in love. He comes after us as, his, as a good shepherd to lost sheep. But Jesus not only seeks the lost, it says he saves the lost. If a lost sheep is found and rescued, what does that mean for the sheep? It means life for that sheep Instead of death, the sheep's no longer going to perish, right? When Jesus rescues sinners, it means they will no longer perish. They're forgiven of their sins. They will experience eternal life rather than eternal death. We know from the rest of Luke's gospel that the good shepherd saves his sheep by laying his life down for the sheep. That on the cross... Jesus perished in the place of sinners so that they could live instead. Jesus is the good shepherd who says that he's come to seek and to save the lost sheep of Israel. There's an irony to all of this, to Zacchaeus being saved. And yet as we see in Luke's gospel, many of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they're criticizing him, they're questioning him, they're rejecting him, they're opposing him. And yet, tax collectors and sinners are experiencing salvation. Some have called this theme in Luke's gospel the, the great reversal. The outside are coming in, and those on the inside are left out. The, uh, Jesus tells a parable in Luke 18 that kind of captures this well. Luke says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, religious leader of the day, and the other a tax collector, a despised sinner. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, right in God's sight. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The sinners who repent are getting in, while the religious leaders who are confident in their self-righteousness are being left out. A great reversal takes place in the ministry of Jesus. When we step back at the story, there are a few big things that come out for us. This story in Luke 19, it reveals Jesus' mission. 
He was the good shepherd on a mission to seek and save lost sheep. This is what he says he came to do. And while the story revolves around how Jesus came for the lost sheep of Israel in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, the Bible makes it clear that his rescue mission extends to the lost outside of Israel too, to those who are not sons of Abraham by physical descent, like many of you are, if not all of you are, to people like you and me. But the story not only reveals Jesus' mission, it also reveals Jesus' heart for sinners, even for notorious sinners like Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector. He loves them. He cares about them deeply. He has the heart of a good shepherd for lost sheep in dire need of rescue. And his heart for them moves him to track them down, to seek them out, and to rescue them from danger. Earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus told three parables that help illuminate God's heart and his heart for sinners. Unlike the religious leaders who had a negative disposition towards sinners, these parables show us that the good shepherd delights in the salvation of lost sheep. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 15. I want to briefly consider the parables here and what light they shed on Jesus' heart and God's heart for sinners. Luke 15. While you're turning there, you can think about this. Have you ever lost something of great value before? Lost something that was precious to you that you really cared about and then found it again? What did it feel like to find it? Maybe lose something significant like a wedding ring and then you finally, you finally find it again. What did that feel like? Verse 1, Luke 15 now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around, gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They're voicing the same kind of dissatisfaction with Jesus that the people do in Luke 19 when he receives Zacchaeus' hospitality. Jesus often spoke in parables. Parables are illustrations or stories that teach a lesson. And in response to the criticism of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, Jesus tells them three related parables. Verse 3, Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. If a shepherd loses one of his 100 sheep, he's going to leave the other 99 with someone else to go find the lost sheep if he cares about his sheep. He's going to go, he's going to find that sheep, and when he finds it, he's going to be happy, he's going to rejoice. What's the point of the parable? God greatly rejoices in the salvation of lost sinners, even more than he rejoices over those who were never lost. His heart towards sinners is contrasted with the heart of the religious leaders. Jesus continues, verse 8, parable number 2. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. These silver coins are probably the equivalent of about a day's wages. And if this was her savings, then losing one of those coins would be losing 10% of her savings. And when she finds it, of course she's going to rejoice to have it again even more than she rejoices about the other 90% that she never lost, right? What's the point of the parable? God greatly rejoices in the salvation of lost sinners, 
even more than he rejoices over those who were never lost. His heart toward sinners is again contrasted with the heart of the religious leaders. Verse 11, last parable. Hopefully you're getting the point already. Verse 11, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, sold his possessions, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. This would have been a very low job for a Jew to do. He longed to fill his stomach with the paws the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your servant. Make me like one of your hired servants. He's going to repent. He recognizes, acknowledges his sin. Verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. You get a picture of God's heart for sinners and the great rejoicing he has when a lost sinner is saved. And then we come to verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. What's the point of the parable? God greatly rejoices in the salvation of lost sinners. Even more so than he does over those who were never lost in the first place. His heart towards sinners is again contrasted with the heart of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. His heart is the heart of the father in the story who runs to his son, who runs to his lost son when he sees him. The religious leaders, they have the disposition of the older brother. The despised sinner Zacchaeus is the lost sheep. He's the lost coin. He's the lost son. What we see in Luke 19 is Jesus' mission. This was his mission to seek and save the lost. This was Jesus' mission. This was Jesus' heart. And this was Jesus' joy. His mission, his heart, and his joy. A few big applications before we close. This is still Jesus' mission. This is still Jesus' heart. And this is still Jesus' joy. The first application for us should be one of worship. Hopefully when you see Jesus like this, it moves you to adore him. 
Aren't you moved in love to him? To this great shepherd who cares for his sheep, tracking down the lost sheep and saving them, rescuing them. The same way you might be moved to admire the rescuers in the, in the great story of the cave rescue who sought out the lost and saved them. You should feel moved to admire the hero coming out on the pages of this passage for us. The stakes are much higher than physical death for Jesus. He's talking about saving lost sheep who are going to perish eternally. He is the good shepherd who comes to help those in need. And he has come even for the people that nobody cares about. He's come for the outcasts. He's come for the notorious sinners like Zacchaeus. The first application is adoration. The second application is for you to receive salvation. Because Jesus has come to seek and save the lost, and apart from him you are lost. The Bible says that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, and that she had a chance to hear Paul say in his letter to Timothy, Paul identifies himself as the chief of sinners. And that's not just true of Paul, that's true of all of us. That's true of you, that's true of me. We are all notorious sinners. We are all in desperate need of salvation. You will perish under God's judgment if someone doesn't save you from it. Jesus offers you salvation the same way he offered Zacchaeus and his household salvation. You can experience that salvation by repenting like Zacchaeus. Repentance for you will look different than repentance for me, which will look different than repentance from him. Repentance will involve you recognizing whatever your specific sins are and being truly broken by them. If it's gluttony, if it's drunkenness, if it's porn, if it's anger, if it's impatience, if it's idolatry, whatever it is for you, recognizing it's wrong, being truly remorseful over your sin, and then renouncing those sinful ways, forsaking them, and resolving to walk in righteousness instead. Have you repented like that? Is your repentance real? Is it real like Zacchaeus' was real? That's real repentance right there. The good news is that all who repent experience the same salvation that Zacchaeus experienced. Consider your specific sins and what specific and what walking in righteousness would look like specifically for you. The third application point, this is the last one. This is still Jesus' mission and his heart and his joy. Is it yours? Is it your mission? Is it your heart? And is it your joy? If we call ourselves followers of Jesus, the answer should be yes. This mission is still ongoing. And he sends out those he saved to carry on his mission, to carry on his work in the world, to bring his salvation, to bring his restoring love to the lost sheep in this place, in our lives, and in the nations. Are you seeking and saving the lost? Following in the footsteps of the good shepherd? Are you going even to the outcasts, to the despised sinners? To the people who you might be concerned about associating with? Or perhaps are you more like the religious leaders? If we're followers of Jesus, we are here to continue carrying out the mission of the Good Shepherd, to bring the Good Shepherd's salvation to the lost sheep around us. Jesus is a true friend of sinners. He was denounced as a friend of sinners in a derogatory way, but he is a true friend to sinners. Are you a true friend to sinners? That's a good question to consider as we close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the portrait of Jesus painted for us in Luke's gospel here in this passage. 
We thank you, Jesus, for being the Son of Man who has come to seek and to save the lost. Move our hearts. Let us admire you. Let us love you. Let us adore you. Let us worship you the way you are worthy of being worshiped for being such a good shepherd. Let your heart be our heart to seek and save the lost. Let your joy finding the lost be our joy. I pray, Father, that we would be faithful to carrying out the same mission that you carried out, Jesus, and that you call us to carry on. I pray that all of us have experienced the same salvation that you offer Zacchaeus, that we have truly repented, we have truly experienced the kind of change of heart that results in a changed life. If not, I pray that you would do that supernatural work in us, that you would cause us to experience that great salvation, to be lost sheep that are found, that are lost no more. I pray, Father, that you would make us faithful to go out and seek the same for those around us. Make us a true friend of sinners, even as you, Jesus, are a true friend of sinners. We praise you for being such a good friend to us and such a good shepherd to us. It's in your name we pray all these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.